This morning, we're stepping away from our study through the book of Ruth. Those of you in the room or online that are visiting, we teach through books of the Bible. We'll be back in Ruth after Easter, but we step away from that um, into what is, I told Carl this, he literally said the words I had written, what is the most significant week the world will ever know. That's what Passion Week is. Now, while we're not in the book of Ruth, I, I do want you to know we're not far from it. In the last week, Larry wrapped up the first, those verses, uh, the final verses in chapter two. He introduced, uh, introduced us to Boaz, Boaz the kinsman redeemer. It's a turning point in Ruth. And, and as he said, the rest of the book will be unpacking that notion, that concept of a kinsman redeemer. Naomi and Ruth need far more than food. They need a redeemer who can restore them to wholeness, who can buy back what they've lost that they can't pay for on their own. They need someone in the bloodline, in the bloodline that they're in that's required to be a legal, biblical redeemer. Well, the Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament, that would include Ruth, is always pointing us toward the new and specifically pointing us toward Jesus. So you see, while we're not, we're not in Ruth, we're not far from it because Boaz and that second part of the story is, is always pointing us to the ultimate kinsman redeemer who redeems us, who saves us, and that's Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of Passion Week. And when I say that, some say Holy, you can say Holy Week. I, I wanna clarify for us, um, it, it, uh, the word passion is, is not referring to emotion when we use it in this way in the church. In our day, it's often tied to, you know, the intensity of feelings that someone would have for someone else or, or the deep motivation, I'm passionate about, you know, something. The word passion, it, it comes from the Latin passio, uh, which means to suffer, to endure. Uh, it also comes from the Greek pathos, which is translated in our Bibles, suffer. Perhaps the word itself was best defined or depicted back in 2004 with Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ. It depicts the last two days of Jesus' life. It's, I would show you clips, but some of you chose not to see the movie because it was so disturbing, and I, I, I respect that. Were we to catch just the slightest glimpse truly of the suffering that Jesus endured, I, 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 would, I would say it would undo us. It would absolutely, un, I don't know that we could hold the pain that he took. It's during Passion Week that the church, that we, we join Jesus in his sorrow. We join him in that walk into Jerusalem in those days leading up to his crucifixion and burial. Uh, it's why we've asked each of you, if, if, you, if you want, to, to, to join us. Let's all join together to get a devotion each day over the next seven days. And I'm gonna put this slide up here because someone may have missed, or online you may have missed this, but if you'll text um, Daily Devo to that number, then you're in, and this evening at six, you'll get an introductory text. We'll hit your phone. Just introduces what we're gonna do. And then over the next Monday, all the way through next Sunday, you're just, it's, they're so short, you know, so they're just, they're just very gettable. But it puts all of us who call fellowship home 
in the same space. And so when we walk here on Good Friday, we've, we've had that thought in our mind. When we walk in here next week on Easter, our hearts are prepared, having walked together, all of us together, with Christ in this week. Carl has said it, and, and, and I mentioned the most significant week in the history of the world. Biblically, I think we could support that. Um, you know, when you look at the Bible, we've got four gospels that are, describe the life of Jesus. Put all those four gospels together, and you've got 80, um, 89 uh, chapters. You have 89 chapters of gospel account. Jesus lived about 33 years, so we'll say 1,716 weeks of life. When you look at the 89 chapters, combined chapters of the Gospels, a third of them are focused on the one week of Jesus' life we walk in now, okay? That means two-thirds cover 1,715 weeks. Every moment of this week, everything that's recorded for us is freighted with significance. And it's only to the degree, you all, that we enter into that story, that we walk in that story, that we feel that story, that we embrace that story, will we walk in on Easter Sunday, a week from today, prepared to celebrate that story. What we're going to read today is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. If you have your Bibles or your tablet, whatever it may be you read from, let's open our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. We're gonna go through all the way through 44. It is, it's, it's familiar to most in the room, so you know the story. It's the triumphal entry. Uh, it's, it's triumphal, and that's an appropriate term, but I would say that it's a, it's a vaporous victory. So there's a vic this is a victory march in a sense in, but it's a vaporous victory. Like your breath on a winter day, it's there and then it's gone. Most everyone who lived the story misses the story. And it's our prayer that we won't as we look at it today. I'm going to look at it in three parts. So you'll look on the screen. I'll give you this outline. It's going to be verses 28 to 36, the king enters. 37 to 40, the king rebukes. And then 41 to 44, the king weeps. And then it's up to us. What do we do with the text? With that, God's word to you and I this Lord's day. Beginning in verse 28 of chapter 19, the king enters. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the moment that is at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. In the Old Testament, when a prophet would speak, you know, God speaks to the prophet, the prophet speaks to the people. Uh, a prophet may speak his whole life and, and quite, and really, and no one ever gets the message. And so there are times when God would say to the prophet, um, you're not gonna speak this message, you're gonna act it out. And so it's not often, it's rather rare, but God would have the prophet, in a sense, pick up the props on the stage and act out the message, why? So it would be unmistakable what the message is. Y'all, the story that we're reading, the triumphal entry, uh, this is Jesus picking up the props and acting the message out. Jeremiah, what did, what did God tell Jeremiah? Take a yoke and wear it. Humans don't wear yokes. Oh, you're in a yoke of bondage in your sin. And the man walks around with a yoke on. The, the message is clear. He said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. Well, the message is clear. The people of Israel are as faithless as a prostitute, but God is as faithful as Hosea who will never let her go. Jesus, the prophet, is acting out the message before us. It's the message that was proclaimed at his birth and is repeated throughout every gospel. I'm only gonna go to this one verse, Luke chapter one, verse 32, spoken by the angel of Jesus when he's a baby. He will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne, hear these words, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, and that message is spoken over and over all the way through the gospel accounts. What Jesus has been saying of himself for three years is now portrayed like, like, like a movie, like it's happening in, in real time in living color. It's a billboard that's flashing and Jesus doesn't do this. You know, he's, he's been telling people, don't say anything, don't say anything. But all of a sudden it's like, boom, spotlights on him to say, I am the King, the son of David, the King of Kings, the Messiah sent from God. That's the message. And I wanna say to you, there's no one that was on this path from the, the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley, goes up to Jerusalem. There's no one on that path that was scratching their heads going, what's he doing or what does that mean? No, they knew precisely what he was doing and saying. Kenneth Bailey, an uh, uh, excellent uh, Bible scholar, he tells a story this is back in the late, in the 60s, when um, former President Nasser was visit, visiting the town of Asuet, and um, 
the, the people in the town, because this is what they do, uh, the people in the town drove 10 miles out of town to meet the oncoming president at that time. They turned their cars around, turned them off, tied them all up with ropes, and then they pulled their cars for 10 miles with the president trailing behind. Why? To welcome, to honor, to acknowledge the dignity of the president coming to their town. And that's what's happening here. The cloaks are thrown on the, on the, the, the donkey and on the ground. Other gospel accounts describe there were palm branches. Which is it? Both and. <laughs> cloaks, palm branches down. To, to, to lay a, you know, for us, you know, just think of the red carpet. I mean, that, that, that says it, you know, what this is. For them to put their cloaks, you see, was, was an act of submission. Look, if I take the thing that covers me and I lay it down and you walk on it, the, the point being, you are over me. I submit to you. You're the king, I'm not. That's what the whole crowd is doing. And they're doing it because the Bible told them this would happen. This is Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is, this is no, um, you know, they had a lot of kings. This is no ordinary, you know, king. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be, battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace, not just to Israel, to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the king of kings who's coming into Jerusalem. The king enters. And then the king rebukes. The story goes on, verses 37 to 40. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, that would be the religious leaders in the crowd, said to Jesus, said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, what the, the crowd is not just someone came up with a phrase, hey, let's just cheer the, ki the king. The crowd is reciting what Carl called us to worship with, Psalm 118. Psalm 118, they all know, you know, is... It's an enthronement psalm. You've got to remember the, the nation knew these songs, you know. It was an enthronement psalm. It was sung when kings would enter cities. This is what they would sing. I mentioned it's a triumphal entry, but I also said it's a vaporous victory song, that it's here and gone. And 
And the reason is what we know of the story is this crowd, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This crowd in just five days, the song changes, you all know this, from blessed is the king to crucify him, kill him, hang him on a cross. That, that's what they start shouting and singing. How is it that they could go from, from this triumphal entry to cries of crucify him? How does that happen like boom so quickly? We're gonna answer that in a moment. It'll tie to our own application. But for now, I want you to consider the rebuke. The rebuke, it begins with the religious leaders. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, i.e., uh, Jesus, tell them to stop saying that. You need to shut them up now. <laughs> now, this is, this is very important. You know, in part, they're saying what they're, you need to shut them up because what they're saying is not true. And why this is important is if what they were shouting was not true, and Jesus allowed them to continue this blasphemous cry, then it would seem to me that Jesus is implicated in their lie, which would mean Jesus is furthering a lie, which would mean Jesus sinned, which means Jesus isn't Jesus. And so I want you to understand when his, his response to them saying, tell them to shut up, is his affirmation that what they're saying is true. <laughs> I am exactly who they are saying that I am. Jesus isn't speaking in hyperbole, I don't think, but I don't think he's speaking in hyperbole when he says the rocks will cry out. And you go, man, rocks can't speak. And I go, I know, but rock, water doesn't come out of rocks either. And it did. And ax heads don't float, but Jesus, it did. I'm going, no, no, God, inanimate creation, God's over all of it. And if, if his people won't express the truth, then, then creation will. I want you to think about this. Jesus has taken their rebuke of him. You need to tell them to be quiet. And Jesus' rebuke of them has basically said to the religious leaders, you need to start singing the song they're singing because it's true. The king enters Jerusalem. He rebukes the religious leaders, verses 41 to 44. The king weeps. 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I wanna catch this first. He, he says, but now uh, they are hidden from your eyes. Like, like you don't see this because it's hidden from your eyes. I want us to be careful here. It doesn't mean that the religious leaders are not culpable and responsible for not believing what's true. There's a, there's a sobering lesson in this for all of us. Um, 
It's not God, God's not keeping, it's not God's fault that they don't believe and they don't see. What it's speaking of is this, from the very beginning, the religious leaders didn't believe Christ is who he said he was. They didn't from the very beginning. And then they doubled down on their unbelief and they resisted. And then they doubled down on their unbelief. We're gonna kill him. Then they doubled down. Now, I want you to understand it's, it's this. When, when a person rejects Jesus and then rejects Jesus and, and just keeps rejecting Jesus and still rejects Jesus, there, there is... What happens is a hardening to where there's a moment when you're, 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 you're stuck, you're blind, you can no longer see. Did God do that to you? No, it was your persistent rejection of the truth. That's sobering for all. I, I mean that, that you, you, can, you can reject, yes, you can reject Christ and, and, and you may, but over time, you will harden, God will allow a, your own heart to harden to such a way that you can't see. Religious leaders who, who should have known better, of course, with their expertise in the word and the law, they were blinded now by their unbelief. What Jesus describes happened, it's very visceral and, 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 and detailed because the Messiah has come, the King has come, and the religious leaders who represent all of Israel reject Messiah, reject the King, then they face now destruction and it literally happened. It was just 30 years later that Titus, Roman general, would come against Jerusalem, surround it, put it under siege. You know, Jerusalem would resist valiantly, but they stood no chance and eventually they, the walls were breached the city was invaded, people were killed. <clears throat> and Titus's soldiers were so mad at the resistance of the Jews that they literally took the town apart. Stone by stone. You know, it's not enough that we beat you. We're gonna dismember the city. And it's exactly what they did. Jesus, seeing what was coming, is weeping. He's not weeping about what's coming upon him. I mean, and, you know, what's about to happen to him this week. He's weeping for them. There are two times in the Gospels where we note it tells us Jesus cried. First it would be John 11 when he wept at Jesus' tomb. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. The Greek word there translated into wept, meaning you know, to, to, to cry at a loss. But then we get here to verse 41, and it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What, what we don't see in our English translation is it's a different Greek word. It's not to weep over a loss. It is instead uh, this, a different Greek word that carries the idea of heaving sobs, <laughs> guttural groaning, a, a, a wailing that's coming out as the deepest part of a person. Not everyone has experienced this, but some of you have been near someone and maybe you've done it, but have been near someone who was crying so darkly and hard, you're like concerned for them. Like they're gonna hurt themselves. They're, they're crying themselves to death. 
That's what Jesus felt. And that's what Jesus did when he considered all who reject him face a destruction that there is no recovery from. So the text puts us on the road. Um, coming down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley to the city of Jerusalem. I know some of you just been to Israel. A group was there and I was gonna show some slides, but, but time-wise didn't, but you saw it. You, you, you saw the paths, the little kind of goat trail that goes down, it goes up. It's, it's not huge, you know, it's, it's all so small in a sense. But we're there, we're, we, we, we've been placed now with this prophecy and lived out. Um, the king is entered. And the song they're singing is true, it's so true. But as we know, the story unfolds and it goes from blessed to crucify. And I said earlier, what, why, how, how can people change their minds so quickly? How, how does that flip on a dime? I think the answer can get us toward our own application and to answer that, I want you to look one more time with me at the first verse we read Verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So, so in the storyline, the story goes like this. Jesus says some things. And once those things have been said, then he goes, I'm going in. <laughs> and he goes into Jerusalem. So we gotta go, well, what did he say? What, what did he feel like he needed to tell the crowd, what did the crowd need to understand before he entered Jerusalem? I don't have time to go way into the parable, but I want you to see what precedes the parable. Go back to chapter 19, verse 11. Verse 11. We see that same phrase. It's all building upon each other. It says, and, and, and they heard these things. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So, so now... He's not into Jerusalem. He's on his way into Jerusalem. He knows he needs to say something to him. And so he tells them this parable. And then he enters Jerusalem. Why did he tell them the parable? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's the key. Let's just say there. The crowd's going, it's happening <laughs> The kingdom is coming. But their aspirations and expectations of kingdom were not what Jesus was about. What do I mean? Their aspirations were more political than spiritual. They, they, they were more nationalistic Israel, we're back. You know, they were more nationalistic than they were personal. The multitude was cheering because for them, the king that has come is gonna crush our enemy, Rome. <laughs> Rome's the problem. Roman soldiers everywhere. Roman rule over us. Limiting how we sacrifice, how we worship, what we do. Can't go anywhere without Roman approval. We gotta get this, 
gotta get this burden off of us. We can get rid of Rome. And the king is coming to do it. The kingdom's now. I will say this. I, I get why they thought the kingdom was coming or the kingdom, it was happening because Jesus said it was. <laughs> Think, read the gospel accounts and he's constantly saying the kingdom's near. The kingdom is with you. Now, what we understand is, yes, the kingdom is, there's a nowness to the kingdom and a not yet to the kingdom. But it's not a political kingdom. <laughs> never was and it never will be. The problem for them was not Rome. It was their hearts. And may I say to myself and all of us, our problem is not out there. It's not that. It's this. It's my heart out of which all kinds of evil come out in word and deed. You know, part of the reason the religious leaders didn't want, wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples is because while they hated Rome, Rome gave them their power. <laughs> they didn't want to lose that power. You know, do this, don't do that. No. But the problem is always the heart. The peace that Jesus brings, the, you know, the peace that this king riding on a donkey, which is a sign of peace, not riding on a stallion, the peace that this king brings is a peace of the heart. It is peace with God. It is wholeness secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the peace that he's bringing, you see, requires, what is Passion Week? It requires suffering, it requires a crucifixion, and it requires a grave death. One only enters the kingdom that Jesus brings by dying. And of course, you can give that, when you give that message, it's like, well, then I'll choose another kingdom. <laughs> I'd rather have that kingdom where I don't have to die that's a false kingdom. That will not put you in relationship with the Father. And so the story, as, as, as we've looked at it, I just want to land with, with two applications. What they're singing is true. And so what's our response? Well, it's to enter the kingdom that comes in Jesus. So there's two things I want you to ponder. The first would be this, have you, have you put your trust in Christ? Have you entered the kingdom that God brings? You know, they missed it. Uh, they missed the day of their visitation. And what I wanna say to all of us is this, you're here today or you're watching online and, and you're hearing what we're singing and saying and I, and I mean this when I say it, if you have never put your trust in Christ, today is the day of your visitation. Don't reject it. You go, well, look, I just wanted to go to church and sing. And, and I'm just telling you, God has other plans for you. 
And ultimately, God's plan is that we all come to faith in Christ, that we come toward our faith in Christ. And so, you know, I'm looking at a room, you know, a couple hundred people, I don't know how many people are online. I know most are here because you have placed your faith in Christ. I understand that. But there's no way that everyone that's looking at me and hearing me now has genuinely put their faith in Christ. And I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so glad you're listening. And if the Spirit of God is, is making any sense in your heart about what I'm saying, pay attention to that. If, if, you, if, you're, if you even begin to understand that, that, that Jesus Christ lived a life you couldn't. He lived a perfectly righteous life because none of us can. And if it makes sense to you and you sense the guilt in your own heart as, as, as we would, that, hey, I'm not perfect and I feel that guilt, then, then that's the Holy Spirit saying yes, because we're all guilty. All of us can't be perfect. <laughs> Only one man ever was, it was Jesus. And so God sent, sent his son Jesus because the payment of sin is death. It's to be separated from God forever. That's justice. So Jesus comes and lives a perfect life. And then Jesus ends up, as we'll get to Good Friday, he dies on a cross. And you go, well, how, how can justice be that an innocent man would die? Well, well, because Jesus had no sin of his own, but he took yours and mine on himself. He says, I'll pay the penalty your sin requires. And so he died on a cross. He literally died. He was buried. That's why we have a grave. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again because it wouldn't be justice if an innocent man remained separated from God. That would be injustice and God is not an unjust God. And so Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus lives. He lives right now. He lives forever. When he rose from that grave, he said, anyone who puts their trust in me, anyone who says, Jesus, I believe that what you did, you did it for me. When you believe that in that moment, your sins are forgiven because what Jesus did is credited to you and you're clothed in his righteousness now. That's what it means to be born again. If you've never done that and, and there's an inkling and I don't know that I've done that, then today is the day of your visitation and I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you, put your trust in Jesus. You say, well, how do I put my trust in Jesus? Talk to God. Tell God that you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you. And you're trusting in him and in him alone. It's, it's your conversation with God. That's one group of people. And now I know I'm speaking to probably the majority when I say this. Those of you who have put your trust in Christ, may I ask you to consider this application. Perhaps on this day of your visitation, we would pause at the beginning of Passion Week to repent. To repent of what? To repent of the kings that have slipped into our world, the little kings, the things that we look to for life, the things that we put before Jesus, the kings that we've taken off our coat and laid it down and let them walk on it. We says, you know, you're good to me. I'm gonna keep, may we repent and join the song here to the true king, Jesus alone. I'm gonna invite the worship team to, come out here because we'll respond in song in a moment. But in the next minute or so, I'm just gonna give you time. Here on the front end of Passion Week, the week of Christ's suffering. And do one of two things. Put your faith in Christ or repent. I've got plenty to repent of every day. 
I'll give you a moment to do that. Your conversation in these moments is with God. Father, thank you for this story, this scene that unfolds before us in which Jesus lives out the very message he has been speaking for three years. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Oh, he deserved a triumphal entry. But that one was vaporous for most. The, the words were empty. They were true, but they didn't truly believe. Help us, I pray, anyone who, who, who does not know you, I pray your spirit would open their eyes to believe the gospel's true for them. And for all of us, myself included, continue to open my eyes throughout this week that as we join you, Jesus, in your suffering, we would find ourselves repenting of our sin, of the kings we lift up and that we bow down to that are not you. John's gospel tells us they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us. We do join that cry, God save us. In Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to stand. Y'all, there is, I said this, it was, it, you know, this day and, and, and the team and the worship as we've done it, it is a triumphal day. <laughs> uh, there was energy in that, on those roads. The king has come, he's entered. Their words true, but can I say it this way? Their heart's not in it, really, truly. And so how, how would we respond? May we respond as we begin this Passion Week by lifting our voices and singing a song that's in our hearts because we believe. And may we give Jesus the, the entry into Jerusalem. May we give him a song that he's worthy of from hearts that believe. May he not even think he needs to call on stones <laughs> when he has our voices to hear.